When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome to the fifth episode of After the Deluge, a Jackson Brown podcast. My name is Justin Cox. Today we're talking about Running on Empty, which came out in 1977 and is Jackson Brown's fifth full-length album. It hit number three on the Billboard Pop Album charts the following year, and the lead single, which is the title track, peaked at number 11. It was nominated for Album of the Year in 1979. And so the Rolling Stone review that you're going to get for this one is by the excellent Paul Nelson, who actually chronicled a lot of Jackson Brown and his sort of songwriter types who were on his periphery. Brown has consciously created a documentary as brightly prosaic as it is darkly poetic with a keen eye for the mundane as well as the magical. Running on Empty is a live album of new material about life on the road. Since there are two separate concepts here, the audience gets an unprecedented double feature, 10 songs they've never heard Brown sing, and a behind-the-scenes look at a show they didn't see. So our guest today does a really good job of drilling into some of the stuff Paul Nelson describes there, and I'll introduce her in just a second. This is the hymn of the Harvard Cowboy, a pragmatic hobo's lullaby. It's what daydreamers have nightmares about. So I'll be honest with you and say that I can't perfectly unpack that set of sentences in this moment, but what I can confidently say is that I like them and that they get at something that feels correct to me. If love needs a heart, then running on empty makes it clear that the road is in a good place, either to find one or to hold one. But then, neither is a house in the shade of the freeway. The pretender told us that. On the road, at least... There's that old gray magic asphalt camaraderie and the special language of musicians who mark time by gigs and guitar cases. And I'm going to read this last paragraph without saying any more because I just think it's cool. You're supposed to end a review like this with a logical recapitulation of the points you've been trying to make, but let's just forget about that. Though everything I've said is true, it's also somewhat obvious and possibly even misleading. What I really like about Running on Empty probably has little to do with the generosity or genius of its dual concepts, with the songwriter's craftsmanship and skill, with how much I admire the music of David Lindley and the section, his backing band, but rather with Jackson Brown himself. It's simple enough to talk about lyrics, aims, structure, and all the critical etc., but it's very difficult to pinpoint what it is that actually moved you. It has to do with essences, I think, and all of those corny virtues like truth, courage, conviction, kindness, and the rest of them. In other words, as impressed as I am with Jackson Brown's art, I'm even more impressed with the humanity that shines through it. Maybe they're inseparable, but I doubt it. And so Running on Empty is easily one of the most important albums to talk about when you're talking about Jackson Brown, and I feel really lucky that I got to talk to the guest I talked to today. Um... Her name is Holly Gleason. She's an author and a music critic who has written for a long list of publications you know, including Rolling Stone, American Songwriter, The LA Times, Paste, No Depression, and tons more. She's the editor of the book Woman, Walk the Line, How the Women of Country Music Changed Our Lives, which won the 2008 Belmont Book Award. 
She also co-wrote the hit song Better as a Memory, which was recorded by Kenny Chesney. That song hit number one, and it's in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. I want to take a second to thank Paul Ingalls, a friend that I've made through this podcast. He's the creator of a show called The Emergence Of, in which he explores the early careers of musicians like John Prine, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, tons more. He introduced me to Holly, so thanks to both of them for that. A link to Paul's show will be in the notes of this episode. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. A couple quick things before we jump in is that as a young teenager, Holly was a highly accomplished golfer and she traveled the country. You'll hear some mention of that in this conversation. Second, Cinema Verite is a style of filmmaking that captures natural and authentic conversation rather than scripted dialogue or planned interviews. We did this interview under quarantine after a storm hit Holly's hometown of Nashville while my kids are in the background and I'm sitting in my closet. Um, I like to think that the general quality of this podcast has sounded pretty good. This one definitely does too. But there's a little bit more uh, rawness to it. And I think that if that was going to happen on any episode, I'm glad it happened on the Running on Empty episode, the one where it's all recorded live and you you hear behind the scenes. So enjoy this conversation with Holly Gleason. I know I definitely did. You know, there were a lot of things that happened on this record, musically, conceptually, you know, it had never been done before. Yeah. So, all right. So that's, let's start there. Um, How did you find this album? The most thrilling thing about Running on Empty was it was my first real time Jackson Brown record. Um, My parents were older, so I had the world's coolest babysitters and they were all completely strung out by late for the sky and for every man and you know the jackson brown album it was something that musically was bare enough that i could find myself in the songs so suddenly i'm old enough to know there's a new record coming the older girls because i'm an only child i craved sisters so i was very kind of you know, I knew that if I would talk to them about music, they would talk back to me. And Jackson Brown was something that was, was very strong binding tissue, but I'd never had an album that I was getting to experience in the moment. And this one was the one my parents were separated. My dad Uh, showed up at school because he knew how badly I wanted it. And I've been talking about it coming out for weeks and he was parked on the circle and, you know, he had his, he had this record theater plastic bag in his hand and a big smile on his face. And he goes, I've got something you want and just held it out. And I knew what it was even before I got in the bag and I just started screaming. Cool. Running on empty had this energy to it and this surging thing. Everyone I know 
very gritty record about a pretty specific way of living. How old were you when you were on Lake Geneva playing golf and you heard Running on Empty? I was, I was 13 or 14, I think. Cool. I was kind of exhausted. I had a high-impact family. Um, I was the only child. I was the adult in charge. So I understood that exhaustion and the inertia of it and how you start moving and even though you're tired, you just keep moving. There were several revolutionary things about running on empty. Um, the idea that, you know, the pretender happened, he became a pop culture guy. John Landau had produced that record, Springsteen's guy, and he was on the precipice of something. What, who knew? And he was chasing the ball the way everybody did. You know, promotion was very different back in the day. Make a record, tour a record, sell a record. And I think that the, the, the chasing the fame put him in a place of sort of recognizing that it was not a regular life and recognizing that they were a little bit gypsies, a little bit carnies, a little bit pirates, you know? And there's, there's a romanticism beneath the loneliness and the alienation, right? Yeah. And I think Jackson decided to core sample it, you know? I don't know that it was as, as straightforward as, I'm going to take people on tour with me and they shall know the emptiness inside. I don't think it was that, but I do think he felt like as someone who had really been a cartographer of the human heart, a way to let people understand the life that came with the, um, the music they loved. Yeah. So he got his, he got his buddy, Greg Landani, and said, I don't know how we're going to do this, but figure it out. I think they got two TIAC um, consoles, the little tiny ones. And Londani's job was to figure out how to set up the tape recorders, get the mics where they, they could work, and capture the sounds. You know, there's something to be said for the mystery. There's something to be said for when I hear um, Danny O'Keefe's The Road, yeah. Highways and Dance Hall is a good song, Takes You Far. This record took us behind, you know, the curtain. It's basically a documentary in the form of a record. The album itself is the documentary. Yes. How do you top The Pretender, which was his biggest record? And, and Here Come Those Tears Again was a huge hit. And The Pretender was a massive AOR thing. What's he going to do? And he found a way to create the record that everybody to this day references as the ultimate document of road life. Did they know they were going to go out and in the middle of the night um, cut Reverend Gary Davis's cocaine, right? Like some kind of swampy, bluesy, funky jam in a Holiday Inn hotel room in the middle of nowhere? I don't think that was contrived. I don't think it was on the docket to we better get this. But I think that a lot of music happens on the road. Yeah. These are musicians. That's what makes them happy. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a backstage area really late because you're waiting for the parking lots to clear out and you'll hear um, a bluegrass jam. You'll be at Bonnaroo and 
you'll hear Grace Potter floating out of somebody's bus or, and, and it's, it's music is the currency for, for genuinely creative people. And I think Jackson was smart enough to know magic would happen. There's something super romantic about this album. Just that you look and you can read like the idea that they include like the room numbers and the holiday inns and stuff like that. It's just impossibly perfect and detailed. And I think the loadout basically says that it says like the audience is a huge part of this. And the way I see it is like, all right, the loadout seamlessly jumps right into stay and stay is a pretty simple song. Uh, uh, cover of the zodiacs maurice williams and the zodiacs but is they they get loose with it like it's three separate people singing the verses including david lindley and it just it feels like kind of to me like exactly what you're describing like it feels like a pure expression of joy out on the road or something and i think it's a cool way to end it stay was sort of that embodiment of how rafter shuddering music could be and that connection that you have, whereas I always looked at the loadout as the benediction. It's that last moment of reckoning. There is nothing sadder or more holy than when the very last of the gear is in the road cases and it's being rolled onto the trucks. That scene in Almost Famous in Cleveland where Penny Lane is in the venue that's supposed to be public hall and she's got a rose and she's kind of skating around in what's left from the crowd. And you kind of go, wow, you know, that's a baptism. Yeah. So the loadout to me was very much the process manual, right? Like this is how we take a show down, but it's also the guy, everybody has come to see make magic honoring how much he loves the magic. For somebody like Jackson, I mean, that was that was his blood. The idea that this is one of his best albums as a person who is known as a great songwriter in which he didn't write half the songs on it, that's like amazing. That's an amazing feat for Jackson Brown. Like that's that's a testament to his greatness even beyond just being a pure like poet, really. I would challenge you that great songwriters know great songs and he sort of had this notion of he was doing a live record and he had these songs that said what needed to be said. And I think some of it really goes into the deep psychological underpinnings. You know, where do you find a song that's as desolate as the road? You don't, actually. Highways and dance halls, a good song takes you far. Write about the moon and you dream about the stars. John Prine once said to me when I said, you know, people really write these amazing sad songs and then happy songs are kind of, and he's like, well, yeah, Holly, because the last thing you want to do when you're having a good time is stop and write a song about it. And I think one of the beauties of this record is Jackson creates such a visceral canvas and the way those melodies move through your emotions 
they kind of cycle you through all the feelings without you actually having to do any work. Yeah. It's absolutely genius. Like when you're listening to running on empty, right? That first ride, it just, bam, it hits you. That's the manic nature of you've got to get to the next city to the point where David Lindley, that lap steel, it almost sounds like heat waves on the road sizzling. You go from, yeah, we're chasing it. We're getting the dream. We're making it happen. And then the bottom falls out, which is what happens. I, that's what it feels like when that moment of you can finally let go, the bottom falls out. And the road, I think, has that, oh, God. And it's existential. And those details make it so physical and real. You know, and in every single line is perfect. It is. It, what's weird about that one being not not being a song that Jackson Brown wrote is it really feels like a song Jackson Brown could have written. I didn't know until my dad bought me the record because I think somebody I remember knowing that song, having heard that song before the album came out, and I remember thinking it is his greatest work. It is his greatest work. This is the leanest, most visual. And, you know, I had loved Our Lady of the Well, and I had loved For a Dancer, and I had loved um, From Silver Lake. Yeah. Because those songs, I, it's, it's that I was in the room. I could see, I could smell, I, I, I knew how much humidity was in the air. And then I heard the road and it's like, oh my God, it's his greatest work. And he didn't write it. And I think the thing I took away from that, because I was surprised I wasn't mad, like, oh, I think the fact that someone else wrote it and the fact that I was living it as a kid golfer was I realized how universal this story was. Yeah. My parents were not wild about the music habit, but if I had my money, you know, they would let me go to the shows. Like something that's interesting about you describing your life in sort of perpetual travel as something that allowed you to identify with this album is that like we move forward a few songs to Shaky Town. I mean, he didn't write that song either, but that that's a song about like the parallel feeling of being a musician on the road with being a a truck driver, like a long, long haul truck driver, basically. There is a fellowship of the road. I've always been a kid. I, I joke that every answer in the world you can find at 72 miles an hour, if you'll just keep driving. And I would get in the car and drive. When you're one of those people and you go into a truck stop, when you stop at a truck stop at two o'clock in the morning and their buses, you know, the drivers all know each other. Sometimes you'll see musicians who are friends. And remember, this album also happened before the internet, before satellite dishes on buses, when all you had was VHS tapes, before cell phones. Like that whole, that's a big 10 for from your back door. Just put that hammer down. Like that's somebody who's going the other way, who's telling you you're free to, you're free to run. I'm witness. 
Must have played in a thousand bands But I'm just here tonight, tomorrow I'll be gone That second verse, you know, where he talks about I've heard the hard luck tales from all those U.S. males You know, that's all the bragging and all the creepy stuff they say, right? No boy tells the truth. So I always thought that was sort of funny, but then you grow up and and you go into the music business and you realize this is all true. Life, you know, Rosie the same way. I mean, the only thing about Rosie that was funny was um, I didn't realize quite what the song was about. I think I thought it was maybe phone sex, like the guy was scamming on the girl, but you know, you were my ring. I thought it was a wedding ring. And finally somebody took me aside and they'd be like, yeah, Rosie's not his wife. What's the line about uh, when you hold me tight or, I think I was purple for a week. I went home and I'm like, oh my God, the entire chorus is a dick joke. It really is, but that's that's the sign of a real poet <laughs> to to hide that. Well, or it's the sign of what you don't, what you're not looking for, you don't see. But it's so artfully told. It's it's also, I mean, the two things about that 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 once I got past the horror of these stupid boys laughing at me because I didn't get it, oh, was um, kind of the the sadness of it. Like you see these girls all the time. They show up early, they find their mark, they get in, but they're looking to trade up. And you, you meet road guys, and for the most part, road crew guys, there's always one or two scoundrels, and they always do really well. But, you know, they're good guys. It's like, you know, he gets her a beer. You probably figure she hasn't eaten a day. Hey, honey, you want a, you want a beer? And then, you know, all no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. She I'd walks be... off with the, with the, um, the drummer. The and he, you know, he's alone again, naturally. Just because you're the star and it's maybe easier for you to get girls? Nobody likes to see their homie come up short. I think you catch that You catch that vibe in that song. I mean, the sympathetic character in that song is the road person mixing the sound. Even when you know you've seen it coming a million times, you know, you root for the guy and you, you want to see people do okay and you don't want anybody to get hurt and nobody wants to end up alone in the dark Rosie you're alright you wear my ring when you hold me tight Rosie that's my thing when you turn out the light I got to hand it to me you get to you love the thunder and I'm amazed by like that's a live performance that that sounds almost like a studio performance to me it sounds so clean and solid never ever ever forget this is the section like those guys are all chinese death stars with fingers <laughs> every last one of them and their level of execution is off the charts yeah so you know when you give them something that rocks they're gonna lock into it and just find that pocket and drill. There was also sort of a collecting and gathering um, on that tour, because I saw it, where it felt really good. When they were in the zone, 
they were peaking. So you get it in every form. You get it in the form of like, you love the thunder, which is a live, a live show in New Jersey on September 6th, 1977. And then next you get it in a hotel room in the form of cocaine. And you kind of alluded to earlier, like it's impossible to ever know how planned something like that was, but the conversation that follows about the like, does it take a clear mind to take it or a clear mind to make it? It's just so trippy and great. Well, it's also, I mean, I was too young, right? For that kind of disco fast living culture. Yeah. I was a kid. So I drank all through my teenage years, but I didn't do drugs. And, um, that was one of those sacraments that you knew for people who were pirates, they could do things beyond the law, right? And um, I think cocaine for this group of people was like heroin for jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s. Right. And, and it was just something that they got into. I remember, you know, asking a friend who was into it, do you, do you think they were really doing coke? Right? Because, like, what if they didn't get the first take? How many lines would they have to do? Because I knew, you know, people would sometimes do things over. I didn't know everything about making records, but I knew that much. And, um, you know, it's like I had to make the decision. Do I want to worry about that? Or do I just want to go, wow. So that's what people sound like when they're skanked out in the middle of the night. Cocaine. Gotta take either more of it or less of it. I can't quite figure out which one. Yeah, I tell you what it does take. It takes a clear mind to take. <laughs> you mean it takes a clear mind to take it or a clear mind not to take it? It takes a clear mind to make it. <laughs> you end that side of the record with that, those people talking. And like, it's a reminder that you are really looking behind the scenes of a tour on this, you know, and then you flip it. You kind of shudder, you know, it's like you end act one and curtain, right? And you're going, oh crap. And the, the second voice is David Lindley, right? Absolutely. This does feel like an unvarnished look at life on the road, but you're still making a decision after the fact, whether you want to keep that in, you know, it's very easy to clip that right off it and the song when it ends and be done. And all right, we got this song recorded in a hotel room about cocaine, but to, to have that afterward, you're choosing to leave that in as part of basically this album in the form of a documentary kind of. I can't imagine him gussying it up, if you will. I, I appreciate it. I think it's, yeah, it's like a, one of the interviews I had is like, you can see him sort of as like a diarist. And it's like, I'm telling you about this. Like, if I'm telling you about this, I'm going to tell you about it. When I got to college, um, I got turned on to the White Album and 
slouching to Bethlehem. Yeah, Joan Didion. Yeah, and you know the way she wrote and the way she sliced imagery, but she also countersliced emotions, even though she maybe wasn't an emotional writer. And I remember she really put me back into this record. You know, it, it was a big deal. And she was from California. And, and then in talking to him, he didn't like extreming moments, but he also believed in the porousness of real life. And he wasn't looking at glazing anything over to make it either prettier or sexier. It was, it was an interesting conversation. And I think I was 20 and, and I think to cocaine, I don't know that he would have taken the honking up those lines um, off the record or the extra verse that he and Glenn Fry wrote, because that wouldn't have been the truth. But I think that's true about a lot of his music across the board. Absolutely. And he understood that to talk, based on who he was, he needed to talk to people who would get it. You know, this is, a, this is someone I should pay attention to. This yeah. is someone who's not just a poet and can turn a phrase. This is a person of integrity. And if we can go back to You Love the Thunder. Hold that thought for a second. If I step away for like 30 seconds and come right back, I need to of grab course. Okay, what you're hearing now is a commercial for this podcast on this podcast, because why not? I want to thank everyone who's reached out. It's been really gratifying to do this, but it's extra cool knowing that it's a shared space for other people who care about this stuff. Also, we're nearing a point where I don't have the episodes pre-recorded, so after next week's holdout episode, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to run a short conversation with my friend Ryan Page, who was on the For Every Man episode. We're both going to share our favorite Jackson Brown song each, and we invite you to do the same. You can go to anchor.fm slash after the deluge. There's a button there to click and leave an audio message. Just tell us your favorite song, say why you love it, and we'll add it to the podcast. I also made a March Madness style bracket of Jackson Brown songs that you can subject yourself to if you want to. Um, I'll warn you, it's fun but also kind of annoying because you're basically pitting songs against each other but if you go to again anchor.fm slash after the deluge there's a link to that there lastly i have some emails out for guests who might be great to talk about lives in the balance and world in motion those are the two albums that i know least about and i want to have someone on who a knows about the albums and b has a sense of the politics of that moment because clearly those albums are getting at that you can email me at justincox22 at gmail.com if you want to talk about possibly being a guest on that as i said i have some emails out so it's possible it will get booked but i'd love to hear from you if you think you might be interested in joining you can reach out directly to me on twitter at cox justin c-o-x-j-u-s-t-i-n and now back to holly gleason and running on empty artists who endure maybe sell less, but they do it over a longer period of time. John Prine is the, is the perfect example of someone that could go out, sell out small amphitheaters, sell out Wolf Trap, but those people, he's oxygen. Mm -hmm. 
and those songs are their life. And I think what John Prine and Jackson Brown have in common is a very deep, compassionate understanding of the human condition. I think Jackson can look internally and write in a pretty aware way about difficult emotions where John tended to look externally and tell the stories of other people's conflicts. But they both had big four-chambered hearts and they both brought everything they had in those hearts to those songs. There's a parallel there that they're both doing so in basically the most like trustworthy, authentic way. Naked. Yeah. You know, John Prine, naked as the eyes of a clown. There is a real trust in the human condition to stand as vulnerable and bare as both of them have for an entire career. And so one of the things about You Love the Thunder, and there were a couple of things that really struck me. First of all, you know, Leland Sklar figured it out, how to create this bass part that was so present. I mean, he's a melodic player and he's very good at moving the beat forward without knocking you over the head. But his part on this was it had that, that rumble of summer thunder. And then when Russ Kunkel just comes down so hard on the toms and the cymbals, I mean, it's like being at your grandmother's house when you're little and the storm hits. And those two guys created something that underscored what was really a song about those relationships that they're not good for you, but you're not going to leave. It's the passion that overloads. And, you know, there's a line in there that's um, what you see revealed within the anger is worth the pain. Yeah. Right? And the idea that you get a second to look at the dark side of a man. I came from a high-impact house. My my dad um, was bipolar before people really knew what that was. And that line... I felt like somebody took a can opener to my family. That was basically the age that I started listening to the music that wasn't my parents' music. I mean, you're getting deep into Jackson Brown as like a young teenager and yeah. and identifying with it. That's amazing. Well, it was just, but it was so, you know, I've used the word prescient. It was so prescient. Um, and I think uh, part of what made me so devoted was the disappointments, the emptiness, the kind of vats of sorrow that you couldn't express to another person. I don't know. It, it, it speaks to the power of connecting with music, especially also, in that formative period of your life. 
Well, and also, like I said, the way that rhythm section, and I mean, they're exemplary throughout the record, but that particular song, and I can remember being up in the attic and there'd be these terrible fights going on downstairs. And remember, I'm an only child, so it's me and these two. And, you know, just the way the notes were kind of exploding, it was it was awesome because that sort of transcended the violence some nights at my house. While my parents were extreme, they were not the only parents who were like that. Yeah. You know, the song is probably musician, high risk, high impact girlfriend, you know, thermonuclear sex, welcome to the 4th of July and fireworks. And it's also um, coitally transactional and yet emotionally never what you really want it to be. You know, that was always the gift of Jackson Brown. Well, it's interesting, like, like obviously he has a gift in terms of, like, lyrical storytelling and everything, but it's interesting to hear you talk about, like, specific, the specific band playing on this, like Leland Sklar and Russ Kunkel. Like, not only do, do they do what you describe on You Love the Thunder and, like, you get something like the road where you get the hotel room part at the beginning. And then you get this like beautiful, amazing silence that then you hear a crowd swell up and then you hear the band come in. It's just another town along the road. The other thing that, that we didn't exactly talk about, but it's true, is, you know, the dynamics are as much a star as Danny Korchmar or the way Craig Durge plays. He's especially yummy when he plays uh, grand piano. You know, they have such presence. But one of the things about the road that just leveled me the first time I heard it when we would go down to Pinehurst, North Carolina for spring training out of Cleveland. You get into these, these, these long stretches where sometimes all you could get would be AM radio and it would be West Virginia and Barry Hillbilly and um, you know, that Appalachia emptiness which the way David Lindley plays the fiddle at the top of the road. It's right? amazing. I love it. It's total holler music. And I mean, when you hear the way people that are raised on that music play a fiddle, it's every emotion in the rainbow, but that really hollow, really sad, really empty thing, it's, it's got a, an emptiness that you can crawl around it. And David nailed it. And then, you know, the dynamic of that, like you said, you have that echoey hotel room. It's so dry. It's so you know, ugh, suspended animation. And then it's so heroic, you know, when it rolls into the concert hall and it swells up, it really is the rush of, of walking on stage. So yeah. you get that very physical sense of the trade-off. Yeah, I think one of the one of the sequencing things 
that I found sort of thrilling is Shaky Town is a little bit that caffeine and speed version of, you know, David Bowie and Ground Control to Major Tom. Cool. I, I was listening to that and I just remember thinking it was that same disassociation. And then you go from that very literal to Love Needs a Heart, which is, um, first of all, it's Lowell George and Valerie Carter. That's double wow. Stones throw that record still just drops me. And, you know, and they were all buddies. So, you know, and they're all students of the human condition. In order to pursue the dream, I have to get on the bus. I have to go to the studio. I have to go do the next thing. To me, today, listening to it, I thought, God, what a brave song to write. So that's like a song talking about like ability to love in the context of life on the road, life, life in endless motion, basically. The ability to not hurt innocent bystanders. Yeah. Maybe the hardest thing I've ever done was to walk away from you. Love Needs a Heart really is like kind of a moment on this album where like it all it still has like the thread that ties to the rest of all the the sort of life on the road struggles is is directly through that but nothing but time literally puts you back on a tour bus again because Love Needs a Heart is the guy who's out there somewhere on the wind looking at the decisions he's made trying to decide is there a truth here that I need to be paying attention to Come on, get on the bus, get on the bus, bus call, you're late. <laughs> we got to roll. But the other thing about Nothing But Time was it contained that nervousness that comes with what day is it, what city is it? Because you never, you know, people think the road is romantic. The truth is you see a lot of semi-moldy dressing rooms. You see a lot of flat meat and catering. You see a lot of fans who really love you in meet and greet and you see the same stage set up pretty much every night. Yeah. That's what you see. And your bunk, you know, or your cleanup room and some tours because they roll the points over, they stay in the same hotel because if you add up your points, you can apply them to what your room costs are. You know, you might have a TV set with a VCR in the front and in the back, you had a, a cassette deck. That was how you killed time. That's all shared and together. You're on the submarine. Yeah. You're on the submarine but, and you're rolling through the hills and the fields. What's so cool about that song is you get, all right, so it's recorded on a Continental Silver Eagle somewhere in New Jersey. Both of those things are straight up explicitly said in that song. Rolling down 295 out of Portland, Maine. Still high from the people up there. Feeling no 
that's a song that I have no idea how much they wrote beforehand and how much they made up in that bus. Like, I don't even necessarily care to know. It's always going to feel to me like they stayed up really late in the bus after a show on the way to New Jersey and jammed that. And you can hear the gears shifting on the on the tour bus. It just feels like a perfect little sampling of Life on the Road that I, I love that song. Yeah. It's so in the moment and it's so like there is a nervousness. You know, you get off stage and you're so high and there's all this energy. And I mean, the fans are throwing energy at you and you've got this energy from interacting and the amplified music and, and the applause and, and then you get on a bus and it's over. Right. Yeah. And in the beauty of it is at least the people on the bus with you have had the same experience. And How do you harness it? How do you ride it down? And I think, you know, the other thing about the song that I loved is, you know, I think Russ Kunkel plays um, a cardboard box. Yeah, it says Russell plays snare, hi-hat, and a cardboard box with a foot pedal. pedal. So instead of having, you know, his big kick drum, they get him a cardboard box. Thump, 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 thump. And... You know, people would sit up and jam. Yeah. Do drugs and jam. And and I've heard some of the most amazing music. I, I worked with Patty Loveless in the 90s. I was friends with Patty Loveless. And some of the old bluegrass songs you would hear sung and the old hymns that were sung and the Dolly and Porter songs that were sung stuff that would never, ever, ever go on the radio or even a record, but God, she just rip your heart out and the musicians would be so free. You know, they could do things that they didn't have the latitude to do on stage. Yeah. It's amazing. That song really, it grabs that reality and pulls it down To me, that song, I mean, so the road, the way the road goes from hotel room to live stage, that's magical. And then this song being like actually recorded on a bus, more than 50, 60, 70% of the time spent running on empty and living on the road is actually just driving around. And so like hearing a song recorded on that, about that, it just, it's just so true to the theme of the album. You know, that's the other thing is it really feels like it for the people at the show right it's all magic time right it's this totally incredible awesome um experience and you just think oh i want to do that but you don't see this i want to round out with load out and stay and just kind of think a little bit about the the thing as a whole as we wind down but i kind of got at a little bit earlier about like to me, Jackson Brown is particularly great at starting his first album with Jamaica Say You Will and ending with my opening farewell. feels perfect. Starting, say, Lay for the Sky with the song Lay for the Sky and ending with, with Before the Deluge feels perfect to me. Starting The Pretender with The Fuse and ending with the song The Pretender. Like they just feel, these things all feel like they really like, they bookend the packages that all the rest of the songs exist in. And this, this album to me, like starting with running on empty and ending with the load out and stay, it just is good storytelling. Basically this album is like storytelling. If we want to call this record cinema verite, which I think is a fair way to assess this running on empty sets the stage 
and it does it authentically. It does it rhythmically. It does it emotionally. And you go on the journey and you meet the people and you see the unguarded moments and you see the triumphant moments and you see the conflict and the price paid and the, you know, if you're going to do all that, right. We know nobody gets to live in the high of the encore. That's over. And the loadout is the benediction. Like everything that we've experienced over the songs this is where he unpacks what it means to be a music man and the reason you suffer the indignities and the reason you put a cage around your heart and the reason that you can look your own disappointments in the eye and soldier on, you know, it's, it's, it's more than getting high um, in a hotel room, hiding from Greg Londani. (laughs) it's more than man david lindley does he haul ass on that pedal steel or what right those things are all incidental very powerful but the truth comes down to a man and a piano and it's time to leave right it's all over there is no more music to be had here and as compelling as, as, as Jackson is with a guitar, I just think him at a piano, he's a very spare player. He's not flashy. He's not somebody who's going to dazzle you with his technique. He knows exactly which notes to play and how to leave a lot of room around them. So after all of it, it's an act of faith. The loadout reminds us why he does it. And it's also a genuflection for us. Now the seats are all empty. Let the roadies take the stage. Pack it up and tear it down. They're the first to come and the last to leave. Working for that minimum wage. They'll set it up in another town. You know, this record was, in an odd way, everybody who lived their suburban life through the five albums that came before. Um, this was us getting to understand how it was that music came to us. Yeah. You know, going to see him was always a big deal. And to be back in one minute. <laughs> okay, two minutes. No, one. <laughs> no, five. <laughs> I'm in my I'm in my my bedroom closet. Cute. those guys specifically the drummer and the bass player are basically changing from like disco and r&b and sliding in and out of one thing to the other i mean you know the country and western on the bus right but then 
they are so rocking back and forth in the disco. It's a live playing of that that just sounds as tight as you could possibly have it. It's basically like one measure of each type of music just to its extreme. It's perfect. Bow down to the section. Country and western. If you get a band that's really in step with the material, some nights are incredible. And usually an incredible night is a lot of incredible. Yeah. As opposed to a really good night, everything is really good. But yeah, it's really good. This was the album where I think everybody got set proper about what it takes to have that once a year moment of witness. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, do you, you don't have to have an answer to this, but do you consider this your favorite Jackson Brown album? Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's my most pivotal. And it's one of those records that, it's kind of a true believer moment when I meet somebody and we're talking, if we land on this record and they get it, I know that they're, they're a, they're a real rock and roll texture. And I don't mean that in the Keith Richards way. I mean it in they've given their heart over to the music. They are committed to being on the road they get what the life is. It's not about self-aggrandizement. It's about the adventure. It's about... Kind of the way I've thought about it is like you can see the the production value going up on Pretender and then you see it in its like sort of full realization on Holdout. And I feel like we were gifted this like very raw thing between those two. Yeah, I think it was a very brave record. You know, like he was on The Verge. You had John Mellencamp in Indiana doing the AM radio thing. You had Bruce Springsteen, who was turning into the working class rock and roll hero. You had Tom Petty also doing the outsider outlier thing, you know, for the Confederate division. And and they were all lean artists, really good songwriters, really strong lyricism, a lot of backbeat. Even, you know, even in the ballads, every one of these guys has very, very strong senses of rhythm. They all kind of suited up and, you know, really went for the Sonics and really went for the, you know, the real clean, big, big production. He basically pours turpentine on all of it and throws a couple portable field recorders on a bus and says, let's show people what the road is. Right on. Super brave. Super brave and also super generous because everybody wants to run off with the circus. I have a little bit of like skepticism about this kind of thing where someone talks to me about a concept album and if I don't get what they're talking about pretty easily, I think it's a little bit like blowhard-like. Like you shouldn't have to explain it this much to me. I think part of the brilliance of this album is like, <laughs> you feel like you're in it. Like it doesn't, it, it does its job of bringing you into what it's, where it's trying to take you. Well, I think too, 
a concept record is a notion that you have to build out. A documentary is a truth that you capture. And that's a more accurate description of what this is. Yeah, cinema verite. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, there was a huge gap between what the rock and roll life was and what it looked like to kids in their bedroom. You know, MTV didn't exist. There wasn't behind the music. There wasn't the real life. There wasn't um, all the talent shows on TV with a jacked up faux reality. There wasn't entourage. Um, So rock and roll was a ginormous mystery. You know, it was something you could read about in Cream maybe or Rolling Stone back when journalists really got access. But short of that, there isn't a lot of, oh, that's how it works. I mean, this record means so much. And like I said, it's such a secret handshake. And it's funny, even now, you'd be shocked at the buses this album turns up on. Cool. Right? When you have that dark night of the soul, this, this is the prayer book. I'm sorry. And if you're just listening at home, right, hating your job as an accountant for the 40-some minutes that this lasts, you know, you're a pirate. That sounds like a perfect way to say farewell. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. People stay It's like, stay, keep it alive. We want to, you know, we want to hold this high for as long as we can because I've interviewed everyone from Neil Young to Lou Reed to um, James M. Tume, and I can tell you they all say the same thing. There's no high like music played well except music played well with an audience that's totally in the vibe with you.